You are listening to Reflections from WT. This is podcast number 34. My name is Randy Ray, and I'm joined today by my big boss, Dr. Walter Windler. And uh, we have a special guest today, uh, a friend of mine that I enjoy hanging out with a little bit, Dr. Dave Roush from over in the political science uh, department. And he is the Teal Bivens Professor of Political Science. I have that written down. I was really going to brag on him for that. What what does that even mean, the Teal Bivens Professor of Political Science? It's funny because I have to explain that to everybody uh, who Teal Bivens, particularly people from other other parts of the the country. Senator Teal Bivens was the the senator who represented our district uh, before Cal Seliger. So, uh, and and, uh, George W. Bush appointed him uh, ambassador to Sweden. So they were good friends. Uh, The Bivens with the Bushes were pretty close friends. And so uh, when he moved from the Senate to being ambassador, there's a lot of campaign financing still available. And so there was a donation made to the university to establish the Teal Bivens Professor of, of Political Science. I always think it's funny because at one time I suggested maybe we should have the Teal Bivens, you know, College of Social Science and Education. Uh, but the Dean of Education and Social Sciences didn't like the way I twisted the the names around from social <laughs> science and education. Uh, but uh, I just thought it was I, I was I'm, I'm always very honored to be the uh, Teal Bivens Professor of Political Science. Uh, very rarely when I call down to folks I work with in Austin and stuff, they don't know who Teal Bivens is. But That's when right. I call people in D.C. or Boston or New York, it's like, what's a Teal? Yeah, uh, <laughs> but their family their family had a lot of influence around. Oh yeah, here, and so they still do. Yeah, and they still do. And by the way, uh, I knew Teal oddly. I mean, here I am, uh, but I knew Teal. Uh, Ambassador Ann Armstrong was on the board of before Regents. you came to work here. Yeah, hmm. I knew him back in the nineties. Yeah. He, I actually, t- he asked me to testify before Senate Finance uh, when he was chair of Senate Finance. Uh, if I would testify on the concept of charter schools, what a person in higher ed thought about them. And of course, I cleared that with the chancellor, uh, then Howard Graves. And I testified. But Mrs. Armstrong, ambassador, she was the ambassador to uh, Great Britain under Ronald Reagan. She was a very, very, uh, a person of great substance. She, uh, she, she had me come up here to meet Teal, uh, because he, she just thought I should meet him. Um, and I had tremendous uh, admiration for him, and I still do for the Bibbins family. Yeah. They are people that have committed themselves to the Panhandle and what the Panhandle stands for. I think in a very admirable way. That's an outsider looking in, but you know, I'm from New York. Dave is from Pennsylvania. You're surrounded by Yankees. <laughs> oh boy, I got to get out of here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm yeah. a Yankees, but uh, no. Uh, one of the interesting things about Senator Bibbins was he's. One of the reasons why it's still called WT and not, you know, Texas A&M University Canyon or not, you know, Texas A&M University of the Panhandle or whatever. Uh, In the early 90s, there was a a big debate in the Texas Senate about what to call the school now that it was joining the Texas A&M system. And so if you read some old prairies, you can track the debate. So he fought for us to remain WT. Mm -hmm. Uh, Largely because a lot of alumni who really weren't entirely thrilled about the A&M part uh, Mm -hmm. didn't want to lose the WT part. So they uh, they fought pretty hard for that. You know, Dave, I'll say too, from a kind of an educational perspective, I think that we've done a very good job on this balance beam, on this knife edge of being uh, independent and representing our region, but also representing the state through the Texas A&M University oh, system. Yeah. And I'll tell you the truth, I can't think of a better place to be, actually. The A&M system, I told the board last week, I went to a programmatic budget review, and I opened as a a way to compliment the board, and it's not, uh, it, it, it's its sincere. Uh, one of the things I like about working for Chancellor Sharp and the board is they allow for a lot of local autonomy 
and responsiveness to local conditions. But at the same time, they give some guidance that's very helpful to us and very, very astute about the the waves and the ebb and flow of higher education in the state of Texas because... Uh, John Sharp and uh, and the vice chancellors, I think, do an excellent job of understanding how all those pieces fit together. Yeah. But we have some individual liberty up here, which I really like. I yeah. think it's very. I, I, I wonder. I've wondered in the past what what WT would look like today had we not become part of the A and M system. I think we'd be hurting. Um, when I came to work at WT, uh, I had some folks say, "Oh, so you're going to work for the Aggies?" And I said, "Yeah, don't say that because if it wasn't for them, I probably wouldn't." have a job here so well and look at what's happened in these past four or five years i mean and and these are things that have been in the in the in the pot cooking for a long time but just drive down russell long boulevard yeah exactly you know our board approved now yeah well anyway we and there's more coming yeah i i came back to wt in 2002 and the campus looked exactly like it did when i graduated in 1984 that's not look at it now i mean it is so different than it was uh, speaking of the campus, it, it has a it has a good feel. Uh, the the students are back. Most of them, a lot of them, are not wearing masks, which is good to see some faces now now and again. Um, but but it feels a little bit more normal, don't you guys think? Well, I do, and it's interesting because uh, for the last several years, I've done these surveys of students. Now that we're, you know, once emails became directory information, which is probably more technical stuff than you only need to know, uh, I feel comfortable sending out emails to all the students at WT, and so I, I do a series of surveys on their political participation level, their ideology level, uh, and some other questions. And last year, of course, I threw out a question about mask wearing, who wears a mask, you know. Mm-hmm. And so this year I decided, hey, this might actually be better to do it this year because this year there's actually some conflict. And last year we were kind of required to wear a mask. Uh, this year it's a little bit more ambivalent. And so uh, I put that I put that on my survey. I'm working on getting that turned into the IRB and probably do that one in the beginning of October again. Yeah, um, that'll be interesting. So I just thought that was a – so I can compare last year with this year. You know, and I, uh, and David, I'm not saying this because you're sitting here. I do appreciate your uh, sort of uh, commitment uh, to the people of the Panhandle through your uh, discipline and through the work you do and interest in what they have to say. You know, some yeah. people nowadays go straight to Austin or straight to Washington, yeah. D.C. I'll tell you the truth. I'm, I'm more interested in what somebody has to say out here on 4th Street. In many ways, because that's, that's what we I, I agree with you. That's why I always enjoyed his. I, uh, Dave shows up a lot on local TV stations, and I like. I always like hearing what he has to say about what's going on with the local here, elections. Here, 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 here. Yes. So, Dave, one of the reasons we're here is we want to talk about Constitution Day, right? And uh, we are always given our talking points to things to talk <laughs> about, and one of the t- talking points today is what is Constitution Day. Well, it's, it's interesting. You're talking with Dr. Wendler before we started. Uh, Constitution Day actually emerged in, in American history in like the 1950s. Uh, and at least my brief reading, uh, which was about 10 minutes after I received the talking points, <laughs> my brief reading of, of Constitution, it actually started as Constitution Week uh, when there mm-hmm. was sort of an encouraged effort among schools and, and various other organizations, museums, archives to have various programs during that week that emphasized the Constitution. Uh, I always thought it was interesting that we needed to have a Constitution Week. As, as you said, I grew up in Pennsylvania, and as, as someone pointed out to me a couple of years ago, Pennsylvania history is the same as U.S. history because, you know, Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, yep, yep. 
I mean, I grew up about 70, 80 miles from Philadelphia. So where they wrote the Constitution, where they wrote the Constitution. Yeah. There's a lot of uh, constitutional history, Revolutionary War history and yeah. things like that. But uh, so Constitution, the Constitution Day that we celebrate now was a result of uh, Senator Robert Byrd, a Democrat of West Virginia, uh, when he was chair of the Appropriations Committee in 2004, added an amendment to a bill to requiring any organization, institution that receives federal funds to have a day of Constitution learning. Uh, now, what that entails, uh, in the grand scheme of things, that's sometimes referred to as an unfunded mandate, where we're told now you have to do something on the Constitution. And at different places, it's kind of fascinating to look at all the different places. Uh, one of my personal favorites was a law school, and I can't remember which one in the Northeast, actually had like a week-long symposium series on why Constitution Day legislation was unconstitutional, uh, which I always thought was kind of funny. Uh, I want to say it was like either Bentley. Does Bentley have a law school? It was a school in Massachusetts, and it was just one of those little ones that they're, all, they're always up in arms about something. And it's like, yeah. it's Constitution Day, unconstitutional. And it's quite funny because they came down with maybe – <laughs> yeah, because yeah. they didn't lose their federal funds. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I know your uh, general proclivities about the value of understanding um, United States political science and Texas political science. I recently wrote a piece on uh, the value of teaching the core history courses and why I thought substitutes for those might be a mistake. I don't know where, I don't know how you can know where you're going if you don't know where you've been. Mm -hmm. I think we have to understand, and our constitution was written by imperfect men, no women, imperfect men then, uh, and now is uh, guided and uh, further enhanced through legislation and the judicial branch and the executive branch. It, it's affected by these imperfect men and women. Uh, and it's imperfect, uh, and it always will be imperfect. And that's, you know, that's a fundamental worldview of mine. And we do the best we can with it and recognize its imperfection. And I think that's the process of, uh, of uh, continual uh, attention to what things say. And I think these core courses that Dave teaches and uh, I think uh, promotes in political science, both state and national government, are very important. And I feel the same way about what I call the kind of uh, uh, fundamental history courses, you know, history up till the Civil War and then from the Civil War to contemporary times, however yeah. it's cut up. Those things, I think those things are hugely important. And oh, we yeah. run away from them with all these specialized courses. So, so Dave, as a political science scholar, and, and, and alluding to what Dr. Wendler just said, how perfect is the Constitution? Well, I, I, uh, does it have faults? Oh, it, it definitely has faults. I mean, if you take a look at it, of course, you know, the not allowing uh, Indians not taxed. I mean, you can just focus on that. Yeah. Where, you know, if you're not paying taxes, you don't have the right to vote. So yeah. for the longest time, I'm trying to remember, went up to the 1960s, I believe, Native Americans did not have the right to vote. Uh, because that late. I didn't realize I want to say it's late. 60s, 50s or 60s. I have to go back and look. I should have probably read my constitution before coming here. But, uh, <laughs> that, I mean, that's one of the fascinating things to look at is there's a couple of organizations that publish annotated constitutions. Now, I tried to get an annotated Texas constitution, and it would not fit in the car. So, uh, but the annotated United States Constitution isn't very long, uh, and it has, of course, all the a lot of the major court cases. You know, Mar Marbury versus Madison, Brown versus Board of Education, and then it, it 
ties them to which constitutional amendments, which mm-hmm. uh, sections of the, the actual document of the Constitution they tie to. But so it's it's definitely not perfect. Um, and of course, there's a lot of historical documentation that you know the reason being that they was created by men. I mean, right. God just dropped it. You know, like the yeah, it's not like the Ten Commandments you know, or fifteen, <laughs> yeah. or if you drop yeah. one. Yeah. Uh, but the uh, the Ten Commandments. But yeah, it's it's one of those where it's just a group of men, and of course we had to. You know, Georgia wasn't entirely sure about that section, and well, without that section, New York wouldn't go along. Well, we didn't have New York. What do I, I mean? We're gonna have New England and the rest of the there's. So it's uh, they always talk about Pennsylvania being the Keystone State, but really New York's the break the break point in the in the eastern colonies, at least the eastern United States. Yeah. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's the interesting thing that, uh, and that's that's the nice thing about the U.S. Constitution is it it's imperfect, so it needs to be changed every now and then, and and fixed and adjusted, and and it meets the requirements of the current era. So, and and that was built into it, right? right. Um, and and the courts have a lot to do with that. You just mentioned a couple of uh, Supreme Court cases, uh, and I'm I'm reading a book now on Supreme Court decisions. I'm not even going to tell you the title of who wrote it. I've got it, I know it, but I'm not even going to bother. But here's the here's the issue to me. What do you think uh, is the most important decision that ever flowed from the Supreme Court, in your perspective? Well, I, I definitely think I'm a Congress person, so I've always uh, liked Congress. I, when I was a uh, my dad ran for office a number of times when I was little, and we used to hang around with our congressman, uh, Gus Yatron, uh, who's an interesting fellow to research on his on his own. But uh, I always think Marbury versus Madison is by far the most important because it does allow the court to come in and look at what Congress does, look at what the president does, and determine, now, wait a minute, that's not really what the Constitution says they should be doing or <laughs> or how they should be doing it and and that type of thing. So I think had we not had Marbury versus Madison, we probably would have a U.S. Constitution that's the size of the Texas Constitution or the Russian Constitution. Yeah, it would. Yeah. You know, yeah. Nine hundred pages would be the right the term. Right. Uh, what about Brown? Brown versus Board of Education. I mean, Brown's very important for the ni- for the nineteen hundreds. Um, I, I can't see Brown actually occurring any time before the nineteen fifties. That was a, a good nineteen fifties sort of a linchpin in the nineteen fifties. Uh, the challenge with Brown, of course, uh, goes back to Marbury versus Madison. The court said it. Now let them enforce it. Uh, how is the court going to get all these African-American students into schools? What's mm-hmm. the court going to do? Are they going to have justices come out and walk them to the front door uh, and that type of thing? So that that's where the sometimes the problem with Supreme Court decisions, they're monumental, but it's hard to put them into practice without some sort of armed force like the you know Arkansas National Guard or something. Right. Uh, the president. You know, something else I never realized, I just always thought that all Supreme Court justices had to be come out of the federal court system, you know, but there was a time when elected officials would be, would and not attorneys, would be on the Supreme Court. And you really don't, I, as I read some of these cases, I know that the, the legal jargon gets very complicated, but if you get, if somebody can help you distill that or cook it down and try to understand the basics, a lot of these, you know, the judicial branch now is formed by the judiciary and in some ways for the judiciary. And I I, I think the, the politics being taken out of that, actually, I, don't, I can't believe I'm going to say this, is not a good thing. I think people that serve as elected officials, that serve as the will of the people rather than a lifelong appointment, um, yeah, I'm not... I don't know enough to even suggest that anything change. It's just interesting that uh, maybe someday what I would consider to be an enlightened president may may actually pick 
some people that did not come up through the federal courts like the court in DC, which right. is like mm-hmm. a like a proving ground for yeah, it's like uh, the minor mm-hmm. leagues for yeah, the yeah. for the major uh, and it's interesting because you take a look at, at people who were senators, for example, Hugo Black, uh one of the most famous uh Supreme Court justices. Uh, there's a guy named Earl Warren. Uh he was uh <laughs> he was actually governor of California. Um I mean, imagine that being governor of California and leading some sort of national office. That will never happen. You know, you never have a oh wait, Ronald Reagan. Uh but uh <laughs> So that's a t- that type of thing, you know, going from governor to being a, a Supreme Court justice is, is today. Right now, we actually get a lot of clerks. So if you look, you talk about Kavanaugh. Well, Kavanaugh was a clerk for one of the, was he Scalia? Yeah, Scalia. He might I, have think, been Scalia. I think, I think, I think. Oh, uh, and I mean, it's interesting how in order to be a satisfactory candidate for the Supreme Court, you have to have been a clerk for the Supreme Court. It does seem a little, it, I mean, even Sandra Day O'Connor uh, was interesting because while she was in the in the court system, uh, she was more Arizona courts than she was federal courts. So and wasn't she? A, I think she might have been a city council person or she something. She was. I, I know she was watch on the those board. people. Yeah, yeah. City council, yeah. <laughs> you might be on the Supreme Court. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> we should nominate you. But anyway, I you know the, this uh, the the narrow view that we get. I I find that I don't read enough, and I read a lot, but I don't read enough because when you read, you get these. Uh, multiple perspectives. And, and as an architect, you know, when we would try to explain to somebody what a building was going to look like, we would draw it from every, pers- you know, from every side and many different views and so on. And it's the same way with trying to understand something like the judiciary or the Congress, uh, you know, or the, 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 the office of president. You've got to see it from a lot of different views, I think. But yeah, it, you it, get to do oh, that every day. Well, and I, I do. And I mean, I actually worked for, worked for a member of Congress. So I actually, uh, was a congressional staffer. And I always thought when I was in high school and stuff, you know, being a congressional staffer would be kind of cool. And I mean, of course, I did my internship stuff and and those things. But uh, I also learned that being like a congressional staffer, uh, you always take your ID off once you immediately leave the building because you don't want anyone to know on the metro yeah. that you, well, you all, everybody knows you're a congressional yeah. staffer because you're wearing a tie and you're getting off the metro. Yeah. But, uh, and where you're getting off the metro. But the uh, it's very interesting that I've uh, been listening to some podcasts about being a congressional staffer and the congressional staffers play a significant role because they can actually go into McDonald's uh, and not be recognized. And they can just sit there and while they're noshing on their, Mm -hmm. uh, their Big Mac, they can also be uh, listening to what the other people are saying and then take that back to the boss. And, you know, people have been, been hanging out, out, out in the amongst the folks again and learning what people have been thinking and and that type of stuff. You know, it's interesting that uh, a similar kind of thing, it was in the movie and I think it was fictionalized, but uh, Churchill um, was on a train talking to a young, young, I can't remember the exact context and what the discussion was, but it had a pretty significant influence on him. And he was able to, you know, ride a subway, ride on the underground with, Mm -hmm. you know, I couldn't do that now, my goodness. Not with the 24-hour news and TV. Oh my gosh. I don't think Churchill would have survived TV. Uh, in fact, he didn't. I mean, he lost in the 1950s in part because of increased media attention and he was starting to get a little slow and, and that type of thing. You know, really old people shouldn't be like leaders of governments and wait a minute uh, well, Dave, of stuff. So. <laughs> I, I always try to do a little research into our, our guest before oh, no. they come on the podcast. Oh, that's, <laughs> uh, oh I hope it wasn't <laughs> a deep dive. But, but here, I mean, I, My background I, check, I didn't yeah. dig up any dirt. The thing that I found interesting about you, they said that you're – you know, you know, one of your main interests in research is religion and politics. And yes. my first thought was, what's the first thing they tell people not to talk about? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he picked both of them. Yeah, yeah. that's right. And he, he doesn't, doesn't so, slow him down. I, 
You may not be the most popular guy at family gatherings, is that uh, right? I'm never the most popular guy at family <laughs> gatherings. Uh, I just remember when I first met my, my uh, wife's youngest sister is the last one. Well, it wasn't the last one married. I actually married the last one. But uh, the uh, uh, Mary's youngest sister, when she got married, she's an attorney and her, her husband was an attorney. And for the longest time, he kept referring to me as, you know, Dave, the pipe fitter. Uh, because he couldn't, you know, he'd gone to school a lot cause he's an attorney and yeah. he just couldn't get the, the notion that why would anyone want to be a professor? It's like, it's like, well, because it's kind of fun and, yeah. uh, I get to do stuff that most normal people don't yeah, get we have, to do. We have good gigs. Yeah. I, <laughs> yeah. We have good gigs. So I always throw our uh, guest a curveball, and, and I asked someone this the other day, uh, at church. So I'm going to ask you guys the same thing. What was your favorite age? And the silence is wrong. My favorite age? Yeah. I, I kind of liked the when I was 20. How come? Uh, I got to spend a uh, the summer I, I spent as a as a student at a university in Vienna, Austria. Uh, and yeah. I, I thanked my grandmother for that. She was actually originally supposed to use tickets to go to Europe. And uh, she had some leg problems, mobility problems. So she couldn't go. So she gave the money to me. And uh, I got a chance to go to to spend uh, uh, the summer studying, interestingly enough, U.S. foreign policy in Vienna, Austria. Uh, but I also got to practice German and, and yeah. that type of stuff. So it was uh, probably my favorite age, but also my most uncomfortable age because you're also starting to get close to graduating from college. And now what am, what am I going to do now? Mm-hmm. And, yeah. and that type of thing. So I just kept going to school and uh, sort of kicked the can down the road a little bit. <laughs> Vienna's a great city too, isn't it? I loved it. Yeah, I I visited there. Dr. Wendler, what's your favorite age? You know, you're going to say, oh, he's just saying this because he's the president of the university right now. I mean, today. I, I can't think of anything more fulfilling than what I do kind of on a day-to-day basis. Not every day, but most days I think to myself, you know, I'm going to pinch myself and think, you know, is this real? Um, because I enjoy it so much and I find it's fascinating uh, to me. And it's some combination of uh, experiences and maybe gaining a little, on good days, gaining a little bit more insight and maturity and wisdom and so on. Not every day, but some days. And uh, I, I just that. enjoy it. Yeah, I get That's going to about wrap up our time. Thank you again for joining us for Reflections from WT, the heart and soul of the Panhandle. This has been episode number 34. Be sure and join us again next time. Thank you. <laughs>